Ah, the hour after lunch. Every speaker's dream come true. Do I need to start this, by the way? Did you get this going? Okay. All right. All right, everybody get, uh, get enough to eat? Too much to eat? How about those cookies? Pretty good stuff. Uh, one of the reasons that my wife travels with me is she reminds me of the things I always forget. So I'm going to make sure and, get, and get, this, uh, get this out before I forget. We have a bunch of materials over there, not just my books, but I mean other stuff from 1517. One of the things that 1517 does, is, we started this probably two years ago, is we have an online academy. And we have, I think, maybe five or six courses that, that are up there now. The great thing about them, besides the, the quality, is that they're absolutely free. They're, they're not in an accredited course, but if you are interested in learning more about Christian apologetics, for instance, or the history of the Christian church, or kind of basic theology, or maybe Christ in the Old Testament, there, there are courses on all of these. I think there's also... Uh, a course on philosophy. And these are all taught by various professors who are connected with 1517. All you got to do is go to 1517.org, look over in the academy section. And each of these is about, I think, maybe five to seven sessions. And we have a new module to where it's like a, or whatever the word is, to where it's, it's much easier to go from lesson to lesson. And there's little quizzes you can take at the end of these. Uh, it's easy to keep track of which ones that you've taken. So they're all over there at, at 1517.org. If you're interested, then uh, sign up. And you can, you can sign up for my course, and you can spend a lot more time learning about this subject because we're only kind of touching on a few of the, the topics that I, uh, that I cover in those lectures. Okay. You guys had a, uh, about half an hour or so to, to talk about some of the questions. Is there any follow-up from that, first of all, that you wanted to talk about or anything, you want to challenge me on my, my orthodoxy or heresy or, or insights that you had or follow-up questions, anything like that. I wanted to get that out of the way before we moved on to, to something else. Well, perfect. Sure. <laughs> going once, going twice. Okay. Very good. Well, we could actually keep talking about the very subject that we were, that we were talking about, but I'm going to move on unless there is any follow-up questions about Christ in the Old Testament with regard to him making appearances as the messenger of the word or anything like that. If there's not, seeing none, we will uh, we'll move on. And I think, I'm, I'm skipping around a little bit just for the sake of time, I think we have two hours remaining today, right? We have an hour, hour now, an hour later. And uh, I've got about 15 hours of material, so we're going to kind of pick and choose here. What we're going to talk about first is something that uh, I chose to talk about, I chose to focus on, because I think it's one of these areas where maybe it's a little bit vague in people's minds as to how this applies to Christ in the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons I want to talk about this. But in my, in, in my mind, more importantly, the reason we need to focus on this is because we are used to hearing the gospel preached to us in a certain sort of way, with a certain set of images, certain sets of phrases, certain kinds of language. So I'll just ask you, you know, when you think of someone preaching the gospel to you, what does that mean? What are they, what are they saying to you? What kind of words? It doesn't even have to be a full sentence, but what kind of words do you... Yeah, just, you know, let's pretend that Nick maybe, you know, sometimes talks about Jesus to you. I know he does all the time. So what are some words, when you think of preaching the gospel, what are some words that just immediately come to mind for you? Salvation. Salvation, okay. What's it? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Good news. Good news, which is what gospel means, right? Good news, yeah. Anybody else? Sin. Sin. Very good. What's kind of the, what images, these are all kind of, Words, but like if you were to think of images that come to mind when you hear good news, what comes, comes to the fore? Resurrection. Resurrection. Yeah, Easter, right? The empty tomb, language like all that kind of language regard to the destruction of death and the rising of Jesus' body again. Maybe something like two or three days before that happened? Of course, yeah. You think, right? yeah, you think of all the Good Friday stuff, right? 
the cross, the Roman guards, everything involved in crucifixion, you know, whether it's him being flogged or with the nails or the crown of thorns, all of these various images that are connected with, with the crucifixion. So kind of wrap up all of that, usually the way that when we think of someone is giving us the good news, they're proclaiming to us the salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life that we have as a result of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us, right? That, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And no argument there whatsoever. That, however, is primarily couched in the language and the imagery of the New Testament, right? So how might we take the language and imagery of the Old Testament and see how that is preaching to us a gospel as well, but in a, in a way that almost seems like a foreign language to us? So if you were to just take what the Old Testament gives to us and present it as the proclamation of the good news, what might that sound like? Well, the Mount Sinai something like this. The gospel is what the promised seed of Abraham is going to provide for us when he brings about a recreation of the world and at the same time brings all of us exiled from God home again in a new and a greater and more glorious exodus in which we are brought along the way of holiness to the city of Zion where the glory of God will dwell in our midst and everything will be like Eden once again, only better. That's what a preaching of the gospel with an Old Testament accent would sound like. Now, I hit upon a number of themes. One of these is creation, and another of these is the Exodus. So, in the next hour or so, what I want to do is take you through how the Old Testament takes the, the language of creation, especially the prophets, they'll take the language of creation and use it to describe the coming salvation we have in the Messiah. And how they will, at the same time, and sometimes in the exact same context, use the language of Exodus and describe how the messianic redemption that is coming to us is going to be like this new and greater Exodus. The reason I want to do this is because unless we're kind of Unless we're, we're, we're clued in on exactly how the Old Testament likes to preach the gospel, very often we can, we can read over these and not really, not really get it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll hear the words, but we don't make the connections between what is being spoken of and how this is actually fulfilled in, in the person of Jesus. And then at the same time, what I want to do kind of at the end is to show how the New Testament actually has adopted the same kind of creation exodus language to describe for us what Jesus did in terms that are much more focused upon how it's finding its fulfillment of what was promised in the prophets. That's a lot to do, so I guess we should get going. <laughs> First of all, creation. How do, we, how do we want to start this? Well, let me begin by, by giving you a, a word and a definition, because this is, this, is <clears throat> excuse me, this is what we're going to encounter in several different places. So uh, a word, the word is metalepsis, which is kind of a fancy technical term for this. Any of you movie buffs? Movie buffs? Yeah. So you know the way this works? If you're having, if you, if you're having a conversation with, uh, with someone who knows the same movie that you know, and you're joking around or whatever, you can drop lines in the movie, right? And maybe you can, you can joke. Or maybe you're not even talking about the movie. You're talking about something else, completely unrelated. But a movie line actually like fits the situation? I would never do that. We would never do that. <laughs> but suppose you would, theoretically. So you drop the movie line, and the other person hears the movie line, and they kind of see it in this context, and you both have like a laugh, right? It's, it's, it, it's a joke. But if, if a third person is there, and they don't know the movie, it, yeah, they're not going to get the joke. It's over their heads. So here's what metalepsis is. Metalepsis is when a biblical author will take a word or a phrase or an image from an earlier movie, if you will, from an earlier text, and he will incorporate this in his discussion. And maybe he's talking about the coming work of the Messiah. Well, here's what he expects you to know. He expects you to know the movie. 
He expects you, yeah, right, without saying it, right? So Isaiah might say something about the new creation and the new exodus. He doesn't say, you know, just like happened back in the days of Moses or whatever. He doesn't make that explicit. You're supposed to know. You're supposed to know the movie, in other words. So if you think of the Old Testament as this big movie with with all these lines in it, if you're not watching it over and over, if you're not memorizing the lines... Very often what happens is you're not, you don't get the joke. You don't get what is being communicated there. So what we're going to see in the prophets is how they will engage in this metalepsis, where they will pick up a word, a phrase, an image, and insert it with, again, the expectation that you're going to make the connection between what they're saying and what this earlier text said, and then they want you to read these side by side. By the way, the same thing happens all over the New Testament, where Jesus or the evangelist or Paul will do the same sort of thing. They won't say, as it is written in the prophet Jeremiah. They'll just use something from the prophet Jeremiah with the expectation that you know it comes from Jeremiah and so that you will go back and read that and then compare it to what they're saying. So with all that kind of as an introduction, let's look at some examples of this. So let's begin with the book of Isaiah. And we will turn to, where shall we start? Let's go to Isaiah 2. That's a good place to start out. Fairly well-known text from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 begins this way. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief, the top, the greatest of the mountains, and will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the house, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law, by the way, that's Torah, for the Torah will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, how so? How is this the gospel of the Lord? Okay. Let's kind of unpack some of this. Starts out by saying, in the last days. That is, that is technical prophetic language for the coming age where God will bring to fulfillment his promises. So it's not, he's not, Isaiah is not just saying, you know what, it's going to happen in the future. It's not just like this vague future. The latter days are the days of the kingdom of God, the days when the Messiah is going to come. It's just like the beginning of Hebrews, right? In times of old, God spoke to our our fathers by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. How can it be the last days? I mean, that was like 2,000 years ago, right? (laughs) The last days. Well, last days is a reference to an epoch in God's history when he's bringing all this to fulfillment. So Isaiah and a lot of the other prophets, when they talk about the last days, they're talking about the days of the Messiah. What's going to happen in those days? Well, you got this mountain that all of a sudden is going to be established as the chief of the mountains, raised above all hills. What's happening there? Well, first of all, it's not just a mountain, right? It's the, which mountain? Mount of the house of the Lord. So this is the temple mountain, right? So much going on here. Okay, first of all, we got to, to understand this, we got we to think back to, we got to think back to Eden. Where was Eden? Well, in the Jewish mind, in the Old Testament mind, Eden was not in a valley, not on a plain. Eden was on a mountain. Ezekiel talks about Eden being on the mountain. John in Revelation will talk about the New Jerusalem coming down on a very high mountain. In, in the biblical mind, Eden is not kind of the way we usually picture it. It's on this, you know, this beautiful paradise on, a, on this flat plain. That's kind of the way I usually picture it. Eden is on a mountaintop. Eden is elevated. 
So when you're thinking about Eden, think in terms of Mount Eden, which, you know, kind of makes sense because God does seem to like to do things on mountains, right? You've got uh, Mount Eden, you've got Mount Sinai slash Horeb, you've got Mount Pisgah, you've got Mount, uh, uh, Mount Zion there in Jerusalem, you've got the Mount of Olives in the New Testament, mountains all over the place, Mount of Transfiguration. God likes to do big things on mountains, and he starts out that way because Eden is on this mountaintop, and a river flows out of that, of course, to branch out to the four corners of the earth. Now, the reason this is important is because What's happening here in Isaiah 2 is he's drawing on different kinds of episodes from Israel's history. He's drawing upon creation, and I'll demonstrate that more in just a minute. But he's drawing upon creation. He's drawing upon what happened in Jerusalem there at, at, at Zion, at, at, at the temple, because he's talking about the mountain, the house of the Lord. And what he's promising is this, this not restoration, but this recreation that's going to take place where God dwells with his people. And something amazing is going to happen when he does this. So the mountain, the temple mountain, and the temple mountain is modeled after Mount Eden. It's going to be established at the top of the mountains. And then all the nations will stream to it. Very interesting. Okay, if, uh, if this is a mountain then all nations are going to stream to it. That seems like it's kind of a, the wrong metaphor. Doesn't it? Do mountains, do, do streams go up mountains? It's not usually the way this works, right? This is a reversal of what we would expect. Well, why does he choose that particular metaphor then? Because what happened with Eden? What came out of Eden? A river. And river in Hebrew is a nahar. Okay? So a river, rivers, nahars, a nahar, nahars, a river rivers its way out of Eden, and it goes, it branches it to how many parts? Four. And how many corners of the world are there? Four. So in the, in the Old Testament mind, when you think of four, you're thinking of all of creation. So what's happening in Genesis 2 is you have a river coming out of this one place on earth that is where God walks among his people. It's like the holiest place. And then this river coming from Eden goes out, as it were, to bring the life of Eden to the rest of the world. So it's going out, right? It's going out from Mount Eden to the rest of the world. What Isaiah sees here is a reversal of that. Because he says nations will stream to it. Same word, the nahar, the river. This is the verbal form of that. All nations will nahar up to this mountain. So rather than the focus being upon how the river goes out, the focus is upon how they come back in. They are magnetically drawn, if you will, up to this mountain. Who? Who comes up to the mountain? Israelites? All nations. This is universal in scope. He isn't just saying, you know, the, all the, the lost Israelites who are kind of scattered here and there, they're going to come home. No, this is all the goyim, all the, the Gentiles, all the nations. So this is not just some kind of narrow focus upon what's going to happen to Israel. Every single nation is going to be drawn to this mountain. And they're going to say, hey, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. For the teaching, by the way, when they say that he may teach us, that's yara. And then it says the Torah will go forth from, from Zion. Yara means to teach, Torah means the teaching. So the teaching is going to go out. The Torah is going to go out, and it's going to draw people in. It's going to draw them in that they may learn the ways of the Lord. He will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for the peoples. And then what will they do? What, how will they have a vocational change? Let's put it that way. Okay, no longer learn war. So what are they going to do with their weapons of war? Yeah, turn them into harvesting tools. Turn them into the tools that who uses? 
a farmer, right? Put your Old Testament mind on. Who's, who's the first farmer? Who's the first guy that, that works with plants? Adam. Adam. Serve the garden, right? He works in the garden. What Isaiah is doing here is he's saying, listen, here's what's going to happen. You know, you had your Garden of Eden with the river flowing out of it in the beginning with Adam there working the garden. He was the first farmer. And then later on you have Jerusalem established, Zion established, and the, the house is built there. The house of the Lord is built there. And it's real pretty narrow focus upon Israel. Well, in the latter days, when the Messiah comes, all this is going to change because what's going to happen is all the nations, all the goyim from the four corners of the world are going to stream toward Zion, to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And when they do this, there's going to be a change because they're going to take these weapons by which they killed each other, which is an image of what happens when the world goes awry, and they're going to hammer those into implements of agriculture so that they can now take up residency in Zion, doing that vocation which the first man, Adam, was engaged in. All of this is the way in which we have an Old Testament-flavored depiction of what Christ is going to accomplish. He's going to bring about a new creation. He's going to bring about not just a restoration of us to Eden, but something even better. Because we, as I like to say, and as I'm, I'm picking this up from church fathers, we gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. We gain more in Christ than we lost in Adam. So it's even better for us. And by being drawn up to Zion, what's being pictured here is God is gathering all people to himself. How does Jesus put it? When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. How so? Because he is humanity reduced to one. what happens to him happens to all of us. He's the representative human. You know, one crucifixion for him is the crucifixion for all. His death is our death. His rising is our rising. So what happens to him happens to all of us. What he's doing is he's pulling all of us to himself, just like Isaiah describes God pulling all peoples to himself. And how does the New Testament talk about the church as city of God or Zion, right? Hebrews says that you have, you, have, you have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched and that's blazing with fire, but you have come to Zion, to the city of the living God, and to the angels and the saints and, and all of these. This is... This is the way that Hebrews is saying, listen, you have come to Zion. You have come to the community of God. You've come to the church, we might say. Now, all of this is compressed into these few verses of Isaiah. And the only way that you really are able to flesh all this out is by seeing how the beginning is connected to the end. And the end to the beginning. And all these various images of mountains and last days and streaming and the, uh, the, the, the hammering there of swords and the plowshares, all of this is connected with the, the greater biblical story. And to, you have to see it, how it fits all, how all of this fits together to really see how this is the preaching of the gospel. Okay? That's just one example. Now we see here mainly a focus upon the work of the Messiah in terms of creation, but there's also a hint of Exodus, too, because where do the nations come from? They come from all over the place, right? It's like they're exiled, they're away from God, and they stream. They're, they're coming home. They're coming back to where God wants them to be. So they're exiled in their faraway countries, but he's gathering them together. Flip a few pages over, or scroll, or whatever you, whatever you do. To, uh, to Isaiah 11. We're just going to kind of jump back and forth here between creation and, and Exodus because these are really blended together. In Isaiah 11, we mainly have a focus upon the theme of Exodus. There's a lot here, so we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. The first verses are familiar to you, right? We hear these uh, Christmas time. Yeah, this is pretty, pretty well-known Christmas Christmas text. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. This is the sevenfold spirit that we meet in the book of Revelation. 
When Revelation talks about the seven spirits of God, it's not talking about like seven Holy Spirits floating around. We're not polytheists. <laughs> seven is the number of completeness. And so this is the sevenfold one spirit. So he's the spirit of the Lord, there's one, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. So that's the sevenfold spirit that we have here. And he rests upon who? The spring or this, this branch, this shoot from Jesse. Okay, as soon as you hear Jesse's name, you think, who? Who's Jesse's son? David. Yeah, so you think Bethlehem, right? So Jesse, this, this, this offspring of Jesse is the offspring of David, or what we commonly call the son of David. So on this son of David, the sevenfold spirit is going to rest. And then we have a description of what he's going to do. Okay? He's going to judge. He's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. Verse 6. Verse 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Look through those. What are you hear those as creation or exodus images? About wolf dwelling with lamb, leopard laying down with a baby goat, calf, young lion, a little boy will lead them, a nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, which just gives me the heebie-jeebies, but I guess it's all, it's all going to be okay. <laughs> Every time I hear that, it's hard for me to, it's really hard for me to take this as a comforting image. I'm going to think of a little baby playing by the hole of a cobra, but that's what it's intended to be, right? He's saying it's all going to be cool. There's no danger involved, right? So these are what? These are images from a restored creation, right? This is the kind of stuff that could have happened in Eden, but no longer does. So this is Isaiah's way of basically saying, look, when the Son of David comes and the Spirit rests on him, there's going to be a restored kind of creation. God is going to regenesis the world. Things are going to be different. But he's not done yet. So verse 10 It'll come about in that day that the nations, notice how often the nations come up. Isaiah's focus is universal. He's not just talking about Israel. The nations, the goyim, the Gentiles, will resort to the root of Jesse. Now, I've got to point this out. You, you, you can't just pass this up. In, in verse 1, he's called the shoot and the branch of Jesse, right? Well, that kind of makes sense. So Jesse's like here, and then the shoot of the branch comes out of Jesse. So he's in the genealogical line of Jesse. But... Isaiah calls him here the root of Jesse? How the heck did that happen? Is he mixing metaphors? There's only one way he can be the root and the shoot of Jesse. If he is, yeah, or the God-man himself, right? Yeah, so is, 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 is the Son of God the source of Jesse, the root? Yeah. Is he also the shoot? Yeah. We're talking about the the eternal divine nature of the Son and the human nature born of, born of David's line, right here compressed into just two images. So what's he going to do? Verse 11. And then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the, notice, second time with his hand. This is the second occasion of what he's going to do. What's it, well, who is he recovering? Well, he's recovering the remnant of his people from all over the place, Right? Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, the islands of the sea. They're scattered all over the place. And he's going to assemble the banished ones. He's going to gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Okay, there's our four corners imagery right here. Then, verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim and Judah is going to end. So Ephraim is associated with the northern kingdom. Judah is associated with the southern kingdom. There was antagonism between these two, jealousy between these two. That's no longer going to happen. Let's skip on down. Uh, verse 15. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river. That's the Euphrates River. So we got in mind Egypt and then the opposite direction, the Euphrates. So we're, we're looking universally here. With his scorching wind, he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. So <laughs> he's going he's to utterly obliterate the Euphrates River and the Sea of Egypt 
So it's not like a permanent. I mean, it's like a temporary thing. It was temporary when he brought Israel through the Red Sea. This is permanent. He's going to wipe them out so they can walk across and not even get their shoes wet. And where is it, what's he going to do? He's going to establish, verse 16, a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left. Just, this is where Isaiah finally makes it explicit. Just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. Isaiah is like making it easy for us here. He's, he's like at the end of this, he's like, okay, if any of you didn't really catch that, I'm talking about a new exodus. What I did in days of old, I'm going to do again, except this time it's going to be a greater exodus. It's going to be a universal exodus. So you see what, what he's done throughout this whole chapter. He starts out, you can't understand this chapter if you don't know the rest of the Old Testament. Did you notice that? If you don't know who Jesse is, all of this is like, okay, some guy named Jesse, he's got a root, he's got a shoot, what's this all about? Well, you got to know 1 Samuel, right? you got to know about David and his dad and where he came from. So this is the promise of the son of David. You also have to know that God promised David that he's going to give him a seed to take over his kingdom. Then you have to know about creation. What did God do at creation? How did everything go awry to understand what he's talking about where this this restoration of peace in the animal kingdom, and where there's peace between even cobras and babies, where they can be right there together, and there's no problem, because there's no, there's no antagonism, there's no violence, there's nothing like that anymore. There's, there's peace reigning over creation again. And then he shifts in the latter half to talk about this new exodus, where people are going to come from all over the place, there's going to be a new, new uh, restoration of God's people from wherever they've been banished, so that they can, like, I, like he said in Isaiah chapter 2, so they can come home. This becomes, this, this coming home from exile becomes a major, major theme of how the work of the Messiah is going to be accomplished in the rest of the Old Testament and I would argue into the New Testament as well. Let's just jump there for a minute. I want to make sure you catch, catch this. What's the parable of the prodigal son about? There's no land too far to come home from. Just think, if you knew about the parable of the prodigal son, but you didn't make the connection between all of the various comings home in the Old Testament, you just missed a major part of, of the story. Because the parable of the prodigal son is really a parable of the exodus. It's a parable of exile, in this case self-imposed, and return. Someone is being brought home who is a long way off from God. The parable of the prodigal son is nothing more than the, than the story of all of the various exiles in the Old Testament retold with a, with a Jesus twist on it. Because it turns out the one who is exiled is the one that basically blew it, right? The one who literally blew his dad's inheritance while he was, while he was out doing what he was doing in this faraway country. It's precisely, yeah, that's, just, that's, that's the ongoing story. That's the broken record in the Old Testament, right? You've got the first major event happening in what we call the Exodus. But even before then, the very first Exodus that happens, the very first exile that happens is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. Next exile that happens is in Genesis chapter 12. This time... It's Abram and Sarah, Abram and Sarai. What happens to them? Because of a famine, they leave the promised land to go down into Egypt. They get in, into trouble with Pharaoh while they're there. And then God does what to Pharaoh? He sends plagues upon Pharaoh. And then Abram and Sarah leave with empty pockets and empty hands? No, they end up leaving enriched, all the stuff that Pharaoh gave them. And then they come back home. That sound familiar at all? <laughs> yeah. So what Abram and, and Sarah did is they enacted what their descendants were going to do. So this was really the first, this was the small E exodus of Abram and Sarah. Jacob, he has to go the opposite direction, right? And then he too comes home a rich man. He leaves only with a staff in his hand. He comes home, he comes home rich. Later on, 586 B.C., Israel is exiled by God to Babylon. 
And earlier before then, 722, the northern tribes are exiled by the Assyrians. So yes, that's the broken record of what happened to God's people all the time. And sometimes they were exiles on their own native soil, as we see in the book of Judges, where basically they're enslaved in the promised land, where these foreign powers will come in, dominate them, uh, exploit all of the, their crops and everything else. This was the repeating pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament. This repeating pattern is finally brought to its fulfillment in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. How so? Think back to the account of the transfiguration, Luke's version. You know what happens on transfiguration, right? Jesus is there with Peter, James, and John, and it's probably night, chances are. It's probably night when this takes place. Then uh, you have Moses and Elijah show up. And Peter's, you know, wanting to build little tents for everybody so they can stay there. And then the cloud appears, and God speaks in the cloud, right? What's it? Oh, you look like Charles Huston. I don't know. I've often wondered that. How did they know it was Elijah, right? Yeah. He was like, he had like a couple tablets of stone in his head. I've often wondered that. How did you know it was Moses? Uh, however, they, they know somehow. But here's my point. Luke tells us that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were having a conversation. What were they talking about? Everybody wants to know, right? Luke alone tells us. It says they were talking about his, well, your English translations mess this up because they usually translate it departure. They're talking about his departure, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. The Greek word there is exodus. They were talking about his exodus, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Christ goes to Jerusalem to bring all of these individual exiles, major and minor, to their fulfillment, in which he, in his death, is exiled from the Father. In fact, the beginning of Psalm 22, which he quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Hebrew for forsake is azav, and azav is often used in context where someone is uh, driven away into exile. So I could, I could say that, you paraphrase it, my God, my God, why have you exiled me? That's the cry from the cross. This is, his, this is his exile from the Father. And then what happens? God brings him home. He brings him back from his exile, which is what Easter is all about. The resurrection of our Lord is the return from exile. It's God bringing his son back home, and not just his son, but all of us in him. So the resurrection of Jesus is the great return from exile that he experiences and that we all experience in him, especially because we are baptized into his death and resurrection. So a baptism is an exile and a return in Christ, exiled into the waters of death and then brought back to life in Christ again. In fact, I never really thought about this until this moment. The Holy Spirit just came upon me. <laughs> it actually fits. It's never hit me before. So in the Old Testament, water, especially the sea, is that's emblematic of the Gentiles. That's the Gentile world. So the, the seas are often an image for like the raging, roaring, and chaos of the seas. That's, that's iconic of the Gentile world, where there's like disorder and chaos and confusion. What happens to us when we're baptized? We go into the water. We are, as it were, exiled. We go into this place of disorder and chaos and confusion, and there we die. And then God reaches in and he brings us out again. He brings us out of these, this disorder and chaos and place of death. And he brings us back to himself. He brings us home to Zion. He resurrects us along with his son so that we can be where, where he is. I'm so going to steal my own material for that later. Just, just a pretty cool connection to make. Okay, so that's Isaiah chapter 11. Anyone want to stop me? Comment, question, anything? Okay. How, we're going to one, a two, I mean? Okay, all right. Uh, I'm trying to decide what's, because there's a lot of good stuff here. Let's jump out of Hosea, I mean out of Isaiah. Let's go to, to one of my favorites, Hosea. Hosea and his beloved wife, Gomer. Yeah, 
Hosea and Gomer, the, the famous, uh, we know more about Gomer than we know about Hosea. Kind of interesting. Right? We know more about this prophet's wife, at least her biography, than we know about Hosea himself. So Gomer was a prostitute. She was, uh, uh, she was iconic of Israel. That's, that's why God wanted Hosea to marry her, because he said, that's exactly what my people have, have done to me. In fact, if you ever want to read some racy biblical material, very racy, probably shouldn't do it with your kids, read Ezekiel sometime. If, if we preached like Ezekiel preached, I think there would probably be some, be some issues. I mean, some of those graphic images in the scripture are, are in Ezekiel. I won't even quote them. Uh, I'm being recorded at the time. You know they're bad when you can't even, like, quote the Bible. <laughs> but Ezekiel is wanting to get across this, uh, this fact that Israel is like a really bad prostitute because she doesn't even get paid. She pays others to sleep with her. And this is the way he's describing Israel. So Israel is paying others. That is, they are reaching out to idolatrous nations so they can worship their idols. Well, Gomer is an illustration of that. But there's great news because Hosea and Gomer and their marriage is also an emblem of something else. Now look at chapter 2 of Hosea beginning at verse 14. This is one of my favorite reversals that we have in the scriptures. God says, Hosea 2.14, therefore behold, I will allure her. That Hebrew word is, a Hebrew verb is a very, uh, it's, it's a racy verb. It's used like, usually for like, when, when Delilah was seducing Samson, she's using her female wiles, basically, that's the verb that's used. So you could really translate this in another context, seduce. I mean, so it's a, it's like a, uh, it, it's a racy word. It's not the word that you would usually expect to be used of how God is going to do, deal with Israel. But it's, it's almost like you know the quote from Flannery O'Connor that with the, the hard of hearing you shout and with the almost blind you draw large and startling images? In other words, you use this kind of exaggerated way of catching people's attention. I think that's what Hosea is doing here. He's like using this very graphic uh, verb with sexual connotations to talk about how God is going to go out of his way to, to allure, to seduce Israel, to bring her into the wilderness. See what's happening? I'm going to bring her back into the wilderness where she spent 40 years with me, long years ago. I'm going to bring her back into the wilderness. He said, I will, literally in the Hebrew, I will speak to her heart. Speak kindly to her is usually the way it's translated. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to her heart. So this, there's this image of God as he, he's this passionate lover who won't give up on his wife. No matter what she's done, he like chases her down. And he's, he's trying to allure her to to deal with her in as, as romantic a way as possible to bring her back to himself. So he lures her back into the wilderness and says, then I'm going to give her vineyards from there. So he's going to create this place of the growing of grapes for wine, for rejoicing. And then here's the best part. Verse 15. And the valley of Accor as a door of hope. Okay, now you got to you got to know your Joshua here. So when Israel came out of the wilderness and they crossed the Jordan River, the first city that they attacked after marching around it seven times was Jericho. And there were very strict instructions. There were no loopholes. Everybody knew when you go into the city of Jericho, what do you not take? Anything. <laughs> Nothing. You see some, you know, fancy little thing there that you really want? Don't take it. The whole city was to be destroyed. Take nothing. Well, there was a guy named Achan who saw a couple of really expensive items and kind of looked around, looked there, and we grabbed him, stuck him in his backpack, got him back to his tent, hit him under the tent floor, thought everything was cool, he'd gotten away with it. Next city they attack is I, and I is like, just a village, you know, like, Okay, send a few troops. We got this. No problem. And then I kicked Israel's butt. They lost a number of men. And Joshua just starts lamenting, Oh, Lord, why have you abandoned us? Blah, blah, blah. And God's like, listen, the problem is somebody broke the band. 
Somebody stole something. So Joshua's got to figure out who it is. So they do it Old Testament ways. So they like, you know, like draw, they're casting lots. So they narrow it down. It's this tribe. Okay, we know it's this tribe. Cast more lots. Oh, we know it's this like clan. More, more lots. This family. More lots. This individual. It's Achan. Achan. And so Joshua says, what'd you do? And Achan finally admits what he did. Achan, as a result, is executed. And a big heap of stones are placed over his body, and he's buried there at a place called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. In fact, Joshua says to Achan, why have you achard us? Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you. And they call that place the Valley of Achor, which thereafter was the emblem of defeat and shame and rebellion and sin and the death of one of the Israelites. Okay? This happened right after the Exodus, right after the crossing of the Jordan. Hosea is talking about a time in the future when God is going to bring Israel back into the wilderness. He's going to romanticize his bride. He's going to try and win her heart back. And the result is going to be that this valley of Ahor, this valley of trouble, is going to be transformed into a doorway of hope. There's going to be reversal. Because this new Exodus is not going to end with a shameful defeat at the beginning. It's not going to end with the death of one of the Israelites. It's it's going to end up as a, as a time of hope and thanksgiving and joy once again. This is the way in which Hosea is picturing for us what happens at the coming of the Messiah. He's going to re-exodus his people, and the result is not going to be defeat. The result is going to be rejoicing over what he's accomplished for her. So that's the way that Hosea is preaching the gospel. It's not the way that you would expect, but that is the way the, the Old Testament is preached with a, with, a, with a gospel accent. Questions from any of you at this point? Yes? No? Okay. So it seems from these passages that we've been reading through that the moment of Exodus is like the the only good time that God's people ever had. <laughs> he's constantly wanting to, he says, as in the day when she came up to the land of Egypt. So that, like, I want to take you back through the wilderness, back through the forward, yeah. to this very moment. When yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is kind of like Exodus is like the happy moment for Israel. I mean, there were, there were other moments, you know, when Josiah was king, there was a, there was a time of great rejoicing, and there were, I mean, there were moments in Israel's history, when things were pretty good, moments, <laughs> but there were, a lot, there were a lot more bad times for Israel. I mean, the Old Testament is basically the documentation of Israel messing up and God patiently forgiving and trying to bring them back to himself. So that's, I, that's why I love the Old Testament so much, because it's really the story of humanity. It's, it's the story of each one of us, right? God is always trying to bring us, bring us home again. We, we stray, he brings us home, we, we engage in some kind of idolatry, and he, he brings us back to himself. So what happens in Israel's history is what happens in an ongoing way in our, in our own lives. He's calling us to repentance, and he's forgiving us, and he's calling us to repentance, and he's forgiving us, and he's calling us to repentance, and forgiving us still more. Yeah, yeah, so how do we incorporate kind of, how do, if I'm hearing you rightly, how do we use the same kind of paradigm to, in an ongoing sort of way, like after Christ has accomplished this? Oh, yeah. I think that's basically what preaching is, to tell you the truth. I think preaching is taking the story of the Exodus and usually implicitly applying that across the board. So what does a preacher do every Sunday? What's his main message? His main message is this, to, to proclaim the law of God, Okay? This is what God says to you. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. In whatever way that comes across, there's a million ways to preach the law, right? This is, this, the, the, the basic message of that part of the preacher's proclamation is, listen, you're in exile. You're wandering away. You're going away from God, and here's how you've done it, right? And then the second part, the primary, main message is, here's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He has reached out and he has brought you home. He sent this new and greater Moses to bring you out of slavery. 
He sent you a new and greater Joshua, Jesus, to lead you into the promised land. He sent you one who is going to come to you where you are, forgive you, restore you, and bring you back to the Father. So I think this, this exile and restoration is basically the model for, for preaching. And not just preaching. I mean, that's in, in interactions that we have with people who are not in the church. It's more or less what we're doing. I mean, everyone who is not a believer is just kind of a, it's like a, a lost soul. It's like some lost child uh, knocking on every door of the world looking for home. Even if, even if they don't realize that that's what's going on. They're all looking for God, even if they don't know they're looking for God. Because they're lost. So what do we come? We, we come and we say, I, I know where your home's at. I know exactly where your home's at and how you, you get back. So let me show you the way. And we show them the way by pointing them to Christ and showing them how he has he's brought them home to the Father. He's brought them back to where he wants them, wants them to be. So I, that's why I think if you were to like summarize the entire message of the scriptures, it's basically exile and return as far as the, the metaphor, the image that applies. And that's worked out in, in any number of ways in uh, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Let me wrap up real quickly with... Oh, no, no, you got a question. Go ahead. Yeah, 1 Peter 3 beautifully brings all of that together by also including the story of the flood, right? Yeah, so you've got exile, you've got return, you've got the flood, which we didn't get a chance to look at, but the flood is basically the story of recreation. So Noah is, is more or less the second Adam. So you get Adam number one in the garden, he messes things up, so God purges the world, starts over with a new family, what are they surrounded by? Animals? Come on. You know, this is like Eden all over again. And then you get to the next chapter and you have the fall again. So he got, starts over, but things are messed up again. But the flood is the story of recreation. And in, in many ways, it's kind of like another exile and return, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, Genesis 1, verse 2, the tohu vavohu, the formlessness and void. Yeah, that is, in fact, Isaiah explicitly says that the earth has become tohu and vavohu again. So he uses that exact same language to describe a desolation that occurs in, in a world that's been perverted by, by sin. So anyway, to kind of sum all this up, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. What we see is the prophets taking the story of creation, story of the Exodus, exile and return, and in many and various ways, using that to talk about what the Messiah is going to, to do. And the New Testament then uses these categories, whether it's the transfiguration or the death and resurrection of Christ, as a, as a way of describing what God has done for us in Christ.